Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and this is a special bonus interview to accompany part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Woolworths Bombings. On a hot morning recently, with the cicadas chirping loudly in the trees, I visited Alan Duncan at his home in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Now in his early 60s, Alan's a friendly, tall, fit bloke with a big smile. He retired from the New South Wales Police after a career that spanned nearly a quarter of a century. And this service saw him rise to the rank of Detective Sergeant, having been a top hostage negotiator and a member of the Tactical Response Group. But back in 1980, Alan had just started in uniform. Well, at, um, at the time of this incident, I'd been in the police for just over 12 months. So were there a lot of bomb threats at that lead-up to Christmas? Yes, very much so. Uh, I think I'd been on morning shift, which is 7 till 3, uh, for a number of days beforehand, and that's effectively the majority of the jobs we were doing. Um, on the particular day, which is Christmas Eve, uh, myself and my partner, uh, we had been doing um, bomb or addressing bomb hoaxes all through the city. Um, there was a number, uh, the last one was at Knock and Kirby's in George Street. Um, and then we received a call saying um, there was a, a bomb threat had been made on Woolworths at Town Hall. Um, we got in, in the vehicle, drove down to Town Hall. Um, we noted that there was a um, another car from, uh, I believe it was Special Branch. It may have been some other unit, but Special Branch sticks in my head, um, had actually also responded. Uh, we got there. We were met at the front door on George Street uh, to the uh, private section of uh, Woolworths by the manager, 
um, who then escorted us inside um, and up onto a lift where we then started from the top of the building and started moving down floor by floor, making sure that everybody was out of it. We did every floor and eventually came back down to the ground floor and we left the lift and we're heading towards the front door to get onto George Street to then check the main store itself uh, when the explosion occurred. Now, there'd been in the lead up the week previous to this, there'd been a, a bombing at Woolies in Warilla on the south coast and then a bombing at Maitland a couple of days later of another Woolies store. Were you aware of those at the time? Yes, yes, I was. Um, although I didn't really think, I really didn't think that um, I'd end up being involved in an actual bombing um, not long after. Uh, at the time, I thought, well, uh, hopefully the police would um, would have locked somebody up. So when you got the call saying it was Woolies, uh, did that trigger something in terms of, well, it's a Woolies, so it might be more of a chance of being a real bomb? Yes, very much so. And also with the, the, uh, the radio call from the special branch or whoever that said they were coming as well. That was, that was very unusual. Usually it's just one, one car or one unit would attend and, um, and address the bomb, the call of a bomb. And were you uh, frightened, apprehensive going into the store? Not, not frightened or apprehensive. I guess I was alert. More than anything, I was alert that it, it, that it was an actual Woolies rather than knocking Kirby's or any other store. So in the uh, court transcript, you said you arrived uh, about 3.15. The, the bomb call had been taken at 3.10. You said there was a full evacuation underway when you got there. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Woolworths had already started that, um, especially on the ground floor because we could see a lot of people already milling around out in the street. So what was the scene like on the corner of Georgian Park? A lot of people obviously were still wanting to shop in Woolworths, so they were told to, I assume they were told to get out uh, because of the threat, um, but they were waiting, I think, for um, to be able to get back in the shop once it, as soon as it was over. And do that all-important Christmas shopping. That's exactly right. So you went upstairs to the office part of the Woolies building um, that has the entrance on George Street. What was the mood like or the atmosphere like on those office floors? The majority of them were um, were already empty. There was one or two people on each floor. I think they were just making sure that each floor was clear. But um, they were they appeared apprehensive, but at the same time, they were they were doing their job, and that's getting people out and away from the building. And you were getting them down via the back stairs, by the either the back stairs or the lift. And there was no sort of major panic in terms of the office office employees. No, no, they, no. The employees were were very good. And the actual blast itself. Tell me everything that you can remember about that, and and how it felt and smelt and what you saw and heard. Yeah. Um, well, not unusually, it was the first time I'd ever been uh, anywhere near a gelic night going off or an explosive device going off. Um, I do recall we, we, we walked out of the, the lift and we were walking towards the front doors. Then the explosion occurred. Um, there was an almighty 
compression of air that's the, the and and the loud noise um, and the ceiling started coming down on us so we were, there was um, jib rock and plaster and whatever was dropping down on us um, of course we we hit the toe we decided to bolt for the door and um, all I, I just do remember that there was an almighty concussion of air and uh, I don't know exactly where the explosive device was but it didn't feel like it was too far away. And was there smoke, fire? There was more dust. I won't say smoke. Um, what I could see was dust, and I think that was mostly coming from the ceiling. Um, didn't see any any fire whatsoever. Um, it was just more noise, noise and air compression. Um, yeah, and that's what I would say. And how did you feel? What did you think at that point when it, when it went off? I thought Christmas Eve, lucky me. I've just at the end, it's right at the end of my shift. I was supposed to knock off in fifteen minutes, so it wasn't. Uh, I thought this is going to be a long night. Were you frightened? Worried that you might have been injured? No, no. Once the explosion had occurred, I I thought, oh well, we've got through this bit, so I've got to get out there and do my job. So, and what was involved with that? Well, once as soon as we got out the front doors, the front glass doors, we uh, straight away I, I saw that there was hundreds of people and they were in absolute panic. Um, there was a lot of glass laying all over the footpath and out onto the roadway. There was cars stopped. There was hundreds of people out on George Street um, just running in between cars and cars were still driving. So um, my initial response was, well, I'll get out there and get everybody away from the building but also stop the traffic so that we don't lose any evidence or whatever that may have come from it. And you said that how, how were people reacting in terms of uh, clamouring to get away? Well, to that extent, there was an awful lot of screaming because um, the majority, I would dare say, were women, um, women and kids being Christmas Eve and the last last minute shopping. Um, but yes, a lot of screaming and um, to the extent that, as I said, they were running out into the traffic and that was, to me, was, was scary in itself because there was someone would have more than likely got run over if we didn't stop the traffic. But I also noted that there's um, the subway going down to town or railway station that um, there was quite a lot of people that were trying to get down the stairs and people were falling and it was it was absolute mayhem because people were virtually climbing over the top of them or trying to assist them up and virtually getting pushed down the stairs down into the town hall railway. And what was your f physical injury from the, the blast? The main thing for me uh, at the time was I, um, I couldn't hear anything. Um, everything was muffled and... Um, and I dare say I was suffering from some shock as well. Um, but the big thing was hearing. Um, I was told later at the hospital um, that I'd, because of my position in the corridor going out to the front doors, I had a granite wall on my left-hand side and I'd received the, um, the, the concussion had actually hit the wall and then bounced back and, 
and it affected my left ear especially. And since then, I've been suffering tinnitus since that day. So you had the ringing in the ears then and ever since, 40 still years? Still have it, still have it now, 40 years later, um, and it just sounds like I've got cicadas in my head all the time. So the cicadas we can hear in the background, you get double that? I get double that, and, um, and then even during winter, I've still got cicadas. And what did you do for the rest of that period until you were taken to hospital? I, um, I went straight out into the middle of George Street, right at the intersection of Park, and right on the corner, op- yeah, right opposite um, Town Hall, and um, tried to direct traffic, uh, steer them away from that intersection, um, which I was kind of effective in, but uh, probably not. <laughs> now, in your court transcript, the uh, prosecution, I think it was, asked if you vomited, and you said no, you were just were very nauseous. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that was more the shock. Um, it, the whole thing was like... Uh, it wasn't a, a panicked reaction. It was just purely that it was so stressful that um, you had so many people you were trying to look after all in one hit. And were you concerned about a second or third blast or what was about to happen? Um, I was unaware of any kind of um, threat of a second or third, but at the same time, um, who knew what was going to happen after that first explosion? I didn't know a fire was coming, um, whether there was serious injuries inside which we hadn't even been able to get into to have a look at um it was just purely waiting for a more emergency services to come and give us a hand to try and deal with it because at that time there was only a couple of us there and how many police and emergency services arrived while you were still there they were they were coming through at a rate of knots and um yeah there was plenty turned up um I stayed away from all those. I was just trying to do what I could do, and um, yeah, until until I was taken away by ambulance. And how long were you in hospital for? I was only for a number of hours to get assessed and um, get my ears checked and my general well-being, and then uh, then headed home. Sometime later, it was probably getting very close to midnight on Christmas Eve. And how was your Christmas that year? <laughs> I rang my wife and and family on Christmas Eve, because that's when we normally celebrate Christmas, and told them what had happened, and uh, obviously they were very concerned, but at the same time, at least I was up and about, and I was heading home, so they were happy. And Christmas Day itself, was that all right? Um, Yes, it was, it was. um, Christmas was, um, I don't remember what I got, or anything, but I do remember that a lot of the chat was all about what happened the day before. So it would have been, your family would have seen it all happening on the TV that night before you actually called them? Yes, yes. They'd, um, they were aware that something had happened in the city. They were hoping that I wasn't involved, but then when I called them from Sydney Hospital, that's when they uh, their concerns were raised, obviously, but I just let them know that I was all right. And how long before you were back on the job? I think I had a, a week or so um, before my hearing got back to, uh, well, close to 100%. Um, and I obviously, I wanted to get back to work. I was only brand new in the job and I didn't want to be taking any sick leave. Another couple of minutes, another minute even, you would have gone into the store to check to see if people were out and could have been right there when it went off and injured or killed. 
Did you have? Uh, did you reflect on that? And it, did, did it make you feel anything? Um, yes, it did. I just felt like I was very lucky. Um, if um, I'd gone in earlier, um, it might be a totally different circumstance, and I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. And did you have any sort of ongoing uh, PTSD or nightmares or anything like that relating to the bombing? Um, yes, I did, and I was diagnosed with PTSD years later, and this came up as part of that assessment, um, and I am still getting treated for it now, and also I run a um, post-traumatic stress disorder support group for police and other first responders at the moment. So I'm trying to fix myself up by helping others with it. So when you were uh, diagnosed with PTSD, did they trace it back to this as being the first instance in a, in a bunch of events? Or? Yes. Well, yeah. All my PTSD incidents were police-related and the, um, the first one that I mentioned to every um, psychologist was the Woolworths bombing. And what did they say to you about it and how it might have affected you? Well, um, it's not too many times that people come up and say, well, I was involved in a bombing. Um, so they, every one of them was really surprised and understanding of how it could have affected you. Yeah. And do you have any ongoing sort of uh, anxiety sort of going into uh, department stores, Woolies in particular, or responding to bomb hoaxes, because there were a lot at this point, and they went on for months. Yeah, they did, and um, no, I, I won't say that I'd had any of those, what you've just mentioned, but um, loud noises really scare the out of me. Even to this day? <laughs> Even to this day, I if, if I see somebody lighting a firework or something of that nature, or about to bang something, um, I tend to turn my head away and prepare myself for the noise. And in terms of what could have happened, what do you think the worst case scenario that day on Christmas Eve at Woolies could have been? I don't think they, they even thought about the repercussions if their plan didn't work right. For instance, the 10 minute uh, notification, it all, all it would take is phones being out or not getting, if Woolworths wasn't able to communicate properly with all their staff, there could have been stacks of either injuries or fatalities. And uh, if it wasn't for especially the Woolworths staff um, getting people out of the, the store, that could have been horrific, especially where the uh, explosion occurred. Um, and on Christmas Eve, it, it just smacks of horror for families. And um, yeah, it was very, very lucky what happened. Many thanks to Alan Duncan for sharing his experiences. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.